I'd like to just start by saying this morning that uh, there is a real historical reason that we are here, whether we've thought this through or not. About two billion people all over the world will gather in places like this because something happened. It's beyond historical dispute. It's reality. It's reality that one really has to try to ignore to ignore. And the reality was this, that humanity just kind of ground on for hundreds of years, even millennia, uh, millenniums went by, and it was the same old problems. We struggled, we suffered, we died, we were uh, run down by diseases and wars and things of this nature. And pretty much humanity was hopeless. It just looked like, you know, make the best of it, you're only going to be here for a short while anyway. Anyway. And then all of a sudden, about 2,000 years ago, something happened. And this is what I want to impress upon you. Something that is beyond historical dispute happened. This person showed up on the planet. Uh, truly a human being beyond dispute, but more than a human being, equally beyond dispute. And all of a sudden, we see this person, this, this Jewish carpenter who arrives on the scene. He says things that nobody's ever said before. He does things that no one has ever done. He defies all the laws of physics. He heals every kind of disease. He walks on water. He stills a storm with a word. He raises people from the dead on three different occasions. And all of a sudden, the whole world had hope that maybe, just maybe, that dream that lies inside of every human being of a wonderful world where every day is a good day and the one after it is better, where everyone is happy and is loved and is respected and wanted and no one's sick, no one suffers, no one dies. There is no crime. There is nothing to fear. The hopes for such an existence came alive because of this one man. You can't get around it. It's historical. In fact, it, it would be a very poor historian who would even attempt to say that this didn't happen. And then the nation of Israel, from which this individual, Jesus of Nazareth, sprang, they for some 1,500 years had been looking for someone that would come and establish the very kingdom, the rule of God on this earth. They called him the Messiah. They kept looking. They kept wondering. They looked in their scriptures for hints, and sometimes the hints made him sound like he was going to take over the governments of the world, which ultimately is true. But they overlooked some other scriptures that talk about him being a, a sacrificial sufferer for humanity. At any rate, it's not a surprising thing that one week before what we look upon as Easter, one week before, Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9-9, and the people of Israel just went berserk. They started getting palm leaves and tossing them down. They took their clothing, and they laid them on the ground in celebration of hope that finally, 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 life is going to come. They welcomed him triumphantly. Their cries of Hosanna ringing across a sea of cloak and palm leaf, shrouding the road beneath it. The Messiah had come. Years of prophecy seated humbly as Zechariah envisioned. And so they raised their hands. This decision to believe, monumental in light of past defeat. Surely, 
He has come to save us. This breathing fulfillment forecast through the ages for daughter Zion. Surely our hopes hang safely upon his shoulders. And so they welcomed him. Their cries of Hosanna, deliver us, please. Their victory cry beyond anticipation into already believed delivery. But their delivery didn't take the shape they'd imagined. Their impassioned belief shattering beneath the reality that rather than warrior king, the line of Abraham yielded a lamb for the slaughter. And days after their cries of Hosanna, after wrenching branches from trees to lay at the feet of their anticipated Savior, these same people stood in the street and screamed, Crucify him! Crucify him! I try to imagine how it happened. This reversal how hearts one day completely convinced of his love could completely invert that belief when presented with the reality that their suffering would remain unchanged. You see, pain colors everything, even prayer. How often is joy silenced beneath the weight of unbearable circumstance? How many times is the roar of loss magnified in the silence of the cross when all we desperately need is the freedom in his voice? God, do you hear me? Do you see me? The song in my heart is gone. I'm not strong enough to do this anymore. Don't I belong to you? How long will you leave me here? How long? Give myself before I give up 
times have I condemned you with these questions? How many times have I tied your affections in inverse proportion to the pain in my heart? Today, I am standing. He must love me, but yesterday he abandoned me, and tomorrow, well, tomorrow's anyone's guess, so I guess we'll see. So while I hate that fickle road that led to Calvary, that rationality. He came to save, but isn't saving. It's not foreign to me. But I have what that turning crowd did not in their short section of time. A complete line from crucifixion to resurrection, which allows me to see, even though suffering for a while, I am never exiled from the love of God. That if he would die for me, he would never abandon me. And the lie of his apathy is silenced forever by the tree that took his life and granted mine. So even when I'm crushed beneath the pain of this life, I will never lose hope. These present sufferings do not erode your victory on the cross or rewrite your promises. What you show me in the light, I will carry in the dark and I will not retreat. I may be broken, but through you, I am never beaten. Oh, 
So, in closing, I would just like us to pray. <laughs> Where do you go after that? <laughs> you know, we live in the uh, soundbite generation, in the cliche generation. We've kind of perfected the cliche thing. And I wish I could say the Christianity, that the church is immune to it, but the truth is we have our cliches too. And, and this song, if you listen to it, it, it kind of rams our heads into reality that we we don't necessarily always get the miracle but if we know that he loves us then that should be enough here's some of the cliches we enjoy in christian world god works in mysterious ways god doesn't give us more than we can handle hmm. when god closes a door he opens a window so that we can jump out maybe i don't know then <laughs> then really millennial stuff. God's got this. God's got this. <laughs> if you just have enough faith, it will happen for you. Your breakthrough is coming. And then finally, your miracle is coming. Your miracle is coming. What if it doesn't? What, what, what if your miracle doesn't come? What if you pray until you ache inside? What if you pray for something that you pretty much know is legit, reasonable, it doesn't happen for you. What then? That last word to the song, I know that you love me. I know that you love me, miracle or not. What if that, what if that is the difference between, what if crushing disappointment is sometimes, oh, that, that's, that's, you jumped. We, we gotta go back one. <laughs> No, there's a slide before that. Uh, I can do it in my head if you want. Would that be easier? <laughs> See, this is what happens when you try to be too hip, too cool, too much technology. Uh-uh. That's the second slide. There's one that goes before that. You must have erased it in your zeal for the Lord. <laughs> I can tell you what it was supposed to say. There we go. Magic happens. Miracles do happen. There you go. Somebody prayed in faith, and they claimed it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's bad theology. <laughs> All right. Now I'm confused. <laughs> what if that, I know that he loves me, miracle or not, what if that is the determining difference between a life of crushing disappointment or indestructible joy? Let this sink in for a minute. What if that's the truth? What if every one of us, and I am stating this as a truism, what if every one of us is on a path right now, present tense, on a path that's going to lead ultimately to crushing disappointment, might not be to the end of life, which is the most scary part, or we're on a path right now that will lead ultimately to indestructible joy. And what if the difference is knowing that my creator Christ loves me, whether I get the miracle or not now we can go to that other slide <laughs> no <laughs> you guys are after me you're after me 
See, I messed him up in the first service. Uh, I was supposed to come out early, and I didn't. I just stood there tapping my feet, you know, wait. I thought another announcement was coming, and they were running around in panic, so now they're getting me back. <laughs> what if crushing disappointment is sometimes, and for some of you, this is going to be important. What if crushing disappointment is sometimes the path to indestructible joy? We're, we're going to meet some men, the first followers of Jesus, that that was the truth for them, that crushing disappointment was the path to indestructible joy. But albeit it didn't have to be that way. It, it had to do with not having correct expectations. So let's go back. Let's, let's refresh ourselves with the story, the story around the Easter events itself. And um, I'll give you just a little bit of historical background so that you can kind of understand the Jewish mindset. The Jewish mindset, you know, they were waiting for some 1,500 years for the king, the deliverer, the one that was going to take Israel and make them the head of the nations. But what they didn't seem to fasten on to was those same scriptures that told them about that, told them that God's most important concern for humanity was to, live, to deliver us from the thing that was destroying us. When Jesus was born, it said, they will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, some of you can finish it for me, from their sins. Yeah. You see, the thing that, that we need, we don't need new, more education, we don't need new government styles, we don't need redistribution of wealth, we need to be saved. I need to be saved from myself. You need to be saved from yourself. Every human being that's ever been on this planet, we need to be saved from our sins. We destroy ourselves, we hurt one another through sins. And sin starts because we are in a broken trust relationship with our Creator. We don't trust Him, we don't know His will, we don't want to do His will, and until we trust Him and know His will and want to do His will, we'll stay broken people. And so God's first concern is that we can be completely restored. The Jews didn't get that. They, they were so sick of being pushed around. They were pushed around by the Assyrians. In 722, the Assyrians conquered them. Then the Babylonians conquered them. Then the Persians conquered them. Then the Greeks conquered them. Then finally, in Jesus' day, the Romans conquered them. They had about 800 years of being bullied by other powers. And they were so up to here with it that they wanted somebody to come along and restore their power and dignity. And that's what they fixated on when it came to the Messiah, the Christ. They didn't fixate on the fact that he came to save us from our deepest need, which is to save me and to save you from our selfishness and our distrust of our creator. So that's the context when we start reading about what happens. Here we go, Matthew. It says, then he released Barabbas, that is Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after he had Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe around him, and after, after, a braiding, excuse me, and after braiding a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and kneeling down before him, they mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him, and they took the staff, and they struck him repeatedly on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on. Then they led him away to crucify him. The next day, which is the day after preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees, these were Jesus' enemies. These were the ones that instigated his crucifixion. The chief priest and the Pharisees assembled before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while that deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I what? I will rise again. Even Jesus' enemies knew that he had predicted his death and 
his resurrection. Nothing like this has ever happened in humanity, human history. But even his enemies knew, and they were concerned about it. So they go to Pilate, wanting Pilate to give them a guard so that the tomb would be secure. So give orders to secure the tomb until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal his body and say to the people, he's been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. So they were very aware of this. So picture yourself, you're a disciple of Jesus. For three and a half years, you have walked with him. You have eaten with him. You slept with him. You've listened to him speak words that no human being has ever spoken before. You've seen such love exude from him that you can't even put it together in your own mind. You've seen him heal every disease that there is. You've seen him still a storm. You've seen him walk on water. You've seen him raise the dead three times. And then it all comes crashing down because... When he's grabbed and arrested and beaten and mocked and spit on and finally nailed to a cross, all your hopes, all your dreams of a golden age go crushing down. I don't think there's ever been human beings ever alive more disappointed than those 11 disciples when they saw Jesus hanging on that cross, clearly dying. Their crushing disappointment is probably the most crushing disappointment that any human's ever known. But you know what? You know about crushing disappointment. Some of us in here, we could, we could write books, we could write lists about the things that have broken our hearts, crushed us, that have disappointed us to the place where we feel that we can hardly catch our next breath. Crushing disappointment, it's not an unusual thing. And like I said, we're all on a path. You really need to listen to this because it's true. You're on a path. I'm on a path that's either going to lead ultimately to crushing disappointment or you're on a path that's going to lead to indestructible joy. We just got to figure out which one we're on. And if we're on the one we don't want to be, we've got to be willing to do what's necessary to get off it and change. So here's one other scripture. Jesus was with his disciples. The last night he was with them, this was just hours literally uh, away from the cross. And he says to them, let me make it quite clear. You will weep and be overcome with grief over what happens to me. The unbelieving world will be happy while you will be filled with sorrow. He told them, he was preparing them, that there was going to be really a dark episode before the light would come. Now, in the scripture, you're going to find that Jesus had predicted his own death multiple times. Let me, let me just give you a, a clear sweep of this. Way back at the beginning of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, Right in the Gospel of John chapter 2, he predicted that he would die and that he would rise again. Then about two years later in his ministry, in Matthew 12, verse 39 and 40, he said that just as Jonah was in the, the, the belly of the great fish for three days, he too would be in the heart of the earth, but he would rise again, predicting his own death. Then in the last six months of his ministry, both in Matthew 16, 17, and 20, he predicted again in great detail that he would be crucified, he would be whipped, and so forth. And but always, always, he said, and then I will rise again the third day. The night before, Matthew 26, 32, he tells the disciples, he's looking at them right in the eyes, he's telling them, I I'm about to go to the cross, I'm going to die. And they're, they're still, they're blocking it out of their minds. They so wanted to see Jesus live and take over the world that they, they just wouldn't let it into their minds that he was serious about dying. They we're still fixated on the notion that the world just needed a political change, that human beings didn't need a change of hearts. The world will never, ever be a place that is at peace and joyful for anyone until my heart is completely changed and until your heart is completely changed. 
That's the reality. They couldn't get that. They were still looking for the political fix. So even though Jesus told them again and again, and by the way, no one in human history has ever predicted their own death and their own resurrection and then actually pulled it off. And Jesus did this. Once again, in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 20, he says, but know this, your sadness will turn into joy when you, what? See me again. He's preparing them. Now, false expectations is what caused the Jewish nation to stumble by rejecting Jesus, their Messiah, the true Savior. The disciples themselves, even though he had taught them extensively, they still had false expectations. And false expectations are often, often the source of crushing disappointment for us. We're, we're not foreign to crush uh, the false expectations. For example, in, in our day and age, one, one of the themes that's floated quite frequently is the notion, the notion that man... If you, if you just fall in love, you, you just got you to gotta find the right person and you find the right person and you fall in love and like nothing else matters. You are home. It's, it's bliss. It's euphoria. It's never going to change. You've got it all. That, that's what life is about, man. You got to find that right someone to love. <laughs> just curious. How many of you have a favorite food? Can I see your hand? Okay, okay favorite food suppose i gave you your favorite food every day for the rest of your life and nothing else it was your favorite food (laughs) now you're sick of it aren't you all i'm trying to say is that no human being, listen to me carefully, some of you. You, you, you put a burden on your spouse that no spouse can bear. You put a burden on your lover that no lover can bear. No human being can meet my deepest, ultimate needs. It's a wonderful thing to learn how to love and to be in love and to be loved back. But it is not the ultimate thing. You were made by Christ and made for Christ, and apart from him, our deepest inner needs will never be met. And when we put that burden knowingly or unknowingly on somebody, we say this stuff like, you're not making me happy. <laughs> Yeah, that's news, right? I mean, not supposed to. <laughs> My job to stretch you a little bit so that you'll learn how to love unselfishly. <laughs> but all kidding aside, false expectations will end in crushing disappointment. We have another one that's pu- uh, pushed around a lot today. It's this notion that, man, you just, you just got to follow your passion. You, whatever your passion is, you got to follow it. You, whatever that dream is, don't you listen to those dream killers. You pursue that dream. When you get that dream, when you are fulfilled, oh, man, you're going to find that's what life was really all about. No, it's not. No, it's not. In fact, here's what I wish for you that might have embraced that false expectation. I hope you get your dream in totality fast. And here's why I hope you get it fast. So that you have time left in life to know that's not what it was all about. That's not enough. Or I hope you never get it so you can delude yourself and chase it until your last breath. That's equally effective either way. But it's a false expectation. That is not the panacea. That's not the magic bullet that's going to bring fulfillment on an ultimate level. We have others, you know, things like um, all I need, you know, is the right career. All, all I need is the right stuff around me. Man, if I lived in the right house and, and I had the right furniture and, and if I could put those stripes in my lawn the right way, man, I'm not sure how to do that. It's magic. Uh, but, you know, if I had, if I had, no, no. Listen to me. 
If my expectation in life is that a noun, a noun is going to bring ultimate fulfillment. You know what a noun is? I remember this from elementary school. Person, places, and things. <laughs> if, if we think, knowingly or unknowingly, that a person, a place, or things are going to bring ultimate fulfillment, it's not going to happen. You, you were made so complex and beautiful. You were made by Christ in his image. He made you for himself. And you are meant to live in a comfortable relationship with him day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. Let me just tell you a little secret about myself. When I was a kid, <laughs> you think I was sitting around as a kid saying, when I grow up, I want to be a pastor of a church. <laughs> Kidding me? Man, I, I was raised by wolves, left home when I was 16, uh, hit the streets from 16 to 23, did every wrong thing that a human being can do. And, and here's where the change came. I got smacked in the face with reality. I'm a realist. You, you, have to, you have to grab my attention and convince me to a core level that there is truth and reality that I cannot escape from. I was hit face to face with the reality of God, the reality of what he was like, the reality of what I was like, the reality of what the condition of the world was. And when I saw reality, I understood you can either resist reality or you can embrace it and submit to it and just do it. I became a pastor. I've been a pastor for 35 years now. I became a pastor because I was just simply embracing reality. I was not one of these guys sitting around saying, I want to do good for the world. I want to make it a better place. And, you know, that was not me. But once I found out the truth about God and the truth about life, I've had a passion and an enthusiasm that has never left me and I suspect will never leave me till I die. But it's based on reality. Jesus, the creator of the universe, came into this world beyond dispute historically and he rose from the grave. Therefore, everything that he promised is valid and I can trust in it. I can live it out. And now I've had a lot of years. I've had 45 years that I've lived as a follower of Jesus. He says, don't do it. I don't do it. He says, do it. I try to learn to do it. I've done this for 45 years and now I know by experience he is the way, the truth, and the life. And a human being will never find their truest self until we trust him and become his follower in align with his word and will. So crushing disappointment is usually the result of false expectations. The disciples had false expectations. The Jews had false expectations. And most of us have chased some false expectations at times. But ultimately, they ended up, they went down that path of crushing disappointment. They were hiding. They were scared. They thought they were going to be executed next. But then they find that the truth of what Jesus said came to pass. We'll go back to Matthew's gospel now. It says, now after the Sabbath, that's a Saturday, at dawn on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Suddenly there was a severe earthquake for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were shaken. These are the Roman guards that I'll talk to you about in a bit. The guards were shaken and became like dead men because they were so afraid of him, him being the angel. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has been raised just as he said repeatedly all through his ministry. Come and see the place where he was lying. And here we have the Easter event. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's been raised from the dead. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy 
and they ran to tell his disciples. Jesus said, you're going to have great sorrow, but your sorrow will be turned into joy because you'll see me again. And when they see him again, everything in the storyline starts to change. Go back to John's gospel, chapter 16. This was the very night before the crucifixion. He's telling them, he's trying desperately to prepare them. So you will pass through a time of intense sorrow when he was crucified, when I am taken from you, but you will see me again. And then your hearts will burst with joy, with, with, no, with joy, which I think it should be, which no one being... With, with no one being able to take it from you. I really messed that up. With no one being able to take it from you. That's indestructible joy. So they go from crushing disappointment within just a few you know, hours, literally 72 hours, to indestructible joy. Now, when I think about this thing of indestructible joy, indestructible joy has to be joy that is so powerful that it can counter the effects of, of a lot of things that may occur in this life. For example, indestructible joy must be able to counter, first of all, deprivation. The truth is, many human beings that have lived and died on planet Earth are deprived their whole life. The truth is, many of us in here will be deprived our entire life of something that we want. It might even be a legitimate want, but we're never going to have it in this life, never. There, there are people that have always lived and died on this planet. That's the truth. And so whatever kind of joy I'm going to receive, it's got to be able to enable me to face that grim reality and still have joy. What about this? Suffering. The joy that's indestructible, it has to be able to face suffering. Everyone suffers in some way in this life. You cannot get around it. And most of us suffer at times pretty severely it's out of our control so indestructible joy would have to be so powerful that even when i am in the worst conceivable sufferings it would change my interior climate where i would have joy and by the way let me explain to you what joy is joy is not some silly giddiness where i just go around smiling all the time joy is this sense that i know who i am i know where i'm at i know my god loves me i know that he's with me i know he'll never leave me and forsake me i know that his kingdom will come and his will will be done and i know that i will dwell with him and those that love him and love righteousness forever and i live with that reality in my mind and i've thought it through so much that i know it can be no other way some of you that are that are going to come out to the bible institute uh, this coming tuesday you'll hear me talk about some of these things it could be no other way but joy that's indestructible has to be able to face the worst suffering because some of us are going to suffer and it's not going to get any better in this life and then the biggie indestructible joy has to be able to look death in the eye death is the big frustrator nobody wants to die we all want to live it's built into us to want to live we were never meant to die death is called the last enemy in first corinthians 15 26 and so i have to have a joy god has to give me a joy that enables me to look at the grim reaper and say do what you will but I know that Jesus will have the last word. Jesus promised that just as he rose from the grave, so he would raise all those that are his. And so that gives you that indestructible joy. Now, when it comes to this business of the resurrection, I never speak on this subject uh, without showing people that, that we, this is not just wishful thinking, that we Christians are not just these you know, emotional, silly people that just choose to believe something. We could just as easily choose in a, a worshiping a can of tomato soup or something like that. No, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is based on very powerful, compelling evidences, the kind of evidences that are argued every day in courts around our nation. So I want to take you through seven pieces of evidence, and I always do this. Number one, the Roman seal. Remember the enemies went to, to uh, 
you know, the uh, Romans, Pontius Pilate, and they said, listen, we're afraid that they're going to steal his body and say that he rose. So give, give us a guard. So he sends a Roman guard. Pontius Pilate sends a Roman guard. They were the most feared military force on the planet. No one would dare try to do anything to, you know, counter a, a Roman guard. The tomb was empty. All the enemies of Jesus would have had to do to stop Christianity in his tracks, just produce a body. Just, just, just find a body that Jesus, you know, really was still dead and rotting in the tomb. There is no Christianity. They couldn't produce the body. The soldiers that were placed in the tomb had gone. Roman soldiers wouldn't run from duty. They knew that that could mean death. But the angel so shocked them that they, they, they took off. They ran. The unexplained massive stone road. They, these stones that they would roll over tombs in those days, they were about two-ton stones. And this thing is just kind of rolled to the side like it was nothing. Ladies were the first ones at the tomb. Now, I did see a lady in the first service whose arms were so big, she might have been able to roll that stone. But, but normally, most ladies are not rolling a two-ton stone. And then this powerful one, this powerful evidence of the resurrection, the radical change, the radical change in two skeptics and one enemy. When Jesus was still alive, his half-brother, James, was not his follower. Sibling rivalry, I suppose. He, he was not his follower at all. But when he saw Jesus alive from the dead, he not only became his follower, he became a leader in the church of Jerusalem and served his half-brother Jesus, who he knew to be the Lord for the rest of his life. There was another skeptic, a man named Thomas. When Jesus first appeared alive from the dead to the disciples, they were all hiding in a room, and they all saw him except Thomas. Thomas was not there. So when Thomas came later, they all were excited, and they tell him, say, Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. And Thomas was like, yeah, <laughs> give me a break. I saw what they did to him. They whipped him beyond recognition. They crucified him. He's dead. I saw him dead. You, you're going to tell me he's alive? Yeah, really. Until I can put my hands in the wound in his side where they stuck that spear, until I can do that, until I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands, I'm not buying any of this gibberish from you people. A week later, they're all gathered. Thomas is there this time, and Jesus appears. It's one of the most, <laughs> it's one of the most touching, powerful portions of Scripture that I know of. Jesus humbly says, Thomas... Go ahead, put your hand in my side. Go ahead, go ahead, Thomas. Put your finger in the holes in my hand. And Thomas, being a godly, honest man, crumbles and just says, my Lord and my God. And he knew he was changed dramatically. Spent the rest of his life serving Jesus. And then there was an enemy. The enemy came later. As Christianity started to spread in its early years, there was a man named Saul from Tarsus. And he sought to stamp out Christianity. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It didn't fit with his theology. And so he tried to stamp Christianity out in its infancy. And he was going and having Christians arrested. He was there standing when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was killed. When the people were throwing rocks at Stephen, he held their cloaks for them so they could get a good throw on Stephen, the Christian martyr. One day he was going to... Damascus to arrest some more Christians and the real risen Jesus appears to him from heaven. He knows he's dealing with a divine being, but he doesn't know who it is. And so he, he asked this question. He says, Lord, Lord, he's hiding his eyes from the light. He says, who, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And the voice comes, I am Jesus. Who you are persecuting. Mind you, he was persecuting Christians. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. You touch one of God's children, you're touching God. And Paul says, what would you have me to do? And he becomes the greatest servant of Jesus ever 
ever that there has been. And he dies from Nero's beheading him rather than renounce his devotion to Jesus. He was an enemy transformed because he saw the risen Christ. These are powerful, powerful evidences that a real resurrection from the dead occurred. And Jesus didn't just appear once. When you read in the book of Acts chapter 1, the first few verses, it says that he appeared to people for over a 40-day period. At one point in 1 Corinthians 15, it says he appeared to 500 people, 500 eyewitnesses, all at once saw him. And then you have amongst the Jews the change that they worship. Jews were Sabbatarians. They worship on Saturday. They were very strict about it. They were, they were very concerned about pleasing God with this. But all of a sudden, Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. And the Jews started to worship on Sunday. Now, they gathered on Saturday a lot too, but finally it shifted to Sunday because that was the day that the Lord rose. That was an enormous change for a Jew to make. It's hard for us to understand how difficult that would have been. And then finally, the transformations in the disciples themselves. I don't know if you've read much of the story, but when Jesus is arrested, these disciples who were good men but honest men and not the strongest in the world, they ran like just in terror when Jesus was arrested. Peter, who was the chosen to be the leader of all of them, he denies that he even knew Jesus three times in one night. These men were scared. They were hiding behind closed doors when Jesus first appeared to them, but that changed everything. Once they saw him alive, they went from being scared men in hiding to men that the world could not uh, stand against. They spoke boldly about Jesus in Jerusalem. They spoke boldly about Jesus around the world, and most of them went to a martyr's death rather than deny him. How do you explain that kind of change except that these very ordinary men saw that death does not have the final word. Jesus had actually risen from the dead. So folks, when people want to say things that, you know, our Christian faith is just based on whimsy or silliness, it's based on an evidentiary basis that's powerful and compelling. And now I've shared that with you. One last verse from John 16. Jesus said this. Again, Scripture is so realistic. It, it helps us to have realistic expectations. Jesus said, I've told you all this so that trusting me you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace in this godless world. You will continue to experience what? Difficulties. Jesus is being very, very realistic. But take heart, I've conquered the world. He says you'll, you'll be unshakable and assured and deeply at peace, but in the world you're going to have trouble. You're going to have difficulties. So here again, indestructible joy is a joy that is able to accept the imperfection and the difficulties of this life because we know something. We're looking for something. We understand something. Jesus' resurrection means there's a new world coming. The kingdom will come. The will of God will be done on this very earth. The day will come when everyone will love God, love righteousness, love one another. And there will be no more disease. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more crime. There will be no more deceit. No, no broken hearts. No loneliness. Everyone will feel loved. Everyone will feel respected. And everyone will be safe forevermore. You'll be able to walk anywhere you want. Your children can go anywhere they want. And they're going to be safe. And righteousness and love and goodness is going to fill the universe forever. That's the promise of Jesus. And his resurrection substantiates it. And that's why our joy is one that can't be taken away. Miracle or not. I'm going to close with... Um, Something from J.R. Tolkien. How many of you Lord of the Rings people, you read Lord of the Rings or maybe you saw the movies? Yeah, I tried to watch the movies, but each time I did, I, I went comatose. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but Tolkien says some interesting things. Um, he says, do you know what the word gospel means? Euangelion, that's the Greek word. 
It means literally the joy news, Tolkien says. He says there's a kind of a story that brings us unbelievable joy. He says these stories all have a certain theme to them. There's always some incredibly hopeless situation, and victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat. But how? Always through someone who comes in and whose weakness turns out to be strength. Someone whose defeat turns out to be a victory. He says it's those kinds of stories that seem just to bring us tremendous joy. And he called them, using the Greek word language again, eucatastrophes. Meaning that these are kind of joyful catastrophes or catastrophes that end in joy. Do you know what the word eucatastrophe means? He says, joyful catastrophe. The tragedy turns out to be a triumph. The sacrifice turns out to bring joy. He said, however, there is a eucatastrophe of eucatastrophes. There is a story that is the story of all stories. He believes that this story plucks the base, the base string of the human heart, and those stories can kind of make it reverberate a little bit, but they can't pluck it, the, the similar stories I should have said. And then Tolkien says this, the gospel, meaning the life, the teaching ministry, the miracles, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is the story is the only story that will pluck that string so that the whole heart never stops reverberating and vibrating with joy. Joy, again, is that stabilized sense that I know the truth about God in life and I'm aligned with it. I'm not resistant to it anymore. The reason it will reverberate is this, is the reality to which all other stories point. So, the started, we started with the words from the song. I know that you love me. Miracle or not. If you have that as a truth in your heart, you are on the path that leads to indestructible joy. And if you don't have that, you can change that. You're you're maybe sensing, maybe some of you for some time, you've been sensing something's going on in your life and and you don't know how to explain it, but you kind of have a sense that maybe maybe it's God that's trying to get through to you, trying to, to get you to consider something different. And I think he's brought you here today to let you know that he loves you, that he wants you, that you can trust him, and that only by trusting him and becoming his follower will you find life and find your truest self. You don't need the miracle. You've got the miracle worker if you put your faith in Christ, our creator. Let's, let's pray. We thank you, our God, for this day, for this day that gives us certainties that we so desperately need in a world that never supplies our deepest longings. Uh, May you help some of us today to make some decisions that will put us on that path of indestructible joy. Help some of us sift through our false expectations and let them go. And Lord Jesus, we pray indeed that your kingdom will soon come in all its fullness and your will will be done on this earth as in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen.